You're listening to the Voices for Nature podcast, hosted by Chris Gambian and Jackie Mumford. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Voices for Nature podcast. My name's Chris Gambian. And I'm Jackie Mumford. Last week, we heard reports from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that the consequences of a warming planet were happening sooner than we'd originally predicted, with more immediate and devastating impacts than we might ever have imagined. Despite this, the Australian government remains, frankly, in neutral when it comes to facing up to this existential crisis and threatens uh, to harm every aspect of life in our country as we know it. Yeah, that's right. Um, And we're really excited um, tonight to be joined by some wonderful speakers um, who can talk to us about the uh, international market and um, carbon trading. So tonight we've got Tennant Reid, who's the Head of Climate, Energy and Policy at the Australian Industry Group um, and has done extensive, um, has extensive experience of climate and energy policy design. Um, And Tennant previously worked as an advisor to the, uh, in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. We're also joined by Tony Wood, um, who um, is the director of, en- of the energy program at the Grattan Institute. And Tony's an expert on um, energy and climate policy. Internationally, he was the program director of clean energy projects at the Clinton Foundation. And also tonight, we've got um, Associate Professor Felicity Dean coming in from Brisbane. Um, as Associate Professor of Law at the Queensland University of Technology, Felicity has published extensively in areas where economics and the law intersect. Um, and for over a decade has been researching and teaching the law of the World Trade Organization. Uh, and her first book investigated the impact of trade rules on climate change and market-based instruments. So lovely to have you all here. Good to be with you. Thanks, Thanks everybody, for being with us. Um, Tenet, we might start with you. Let's get to the, the very basics. This is the sort of four dummies guide. What, what is a carbon tariff? Uh, what's it for? Uh, why does it matter? So there's two ways, uh, two forms of carbon tariff or carbon border adjustment that you might do. The one we've been talking about the most is basically where you've got a country or an economy that's imposing a cost on carbon, most frequently an outright carbon price, you could impose that cost or an equivalent to that cost on imports to that country of the sorts of products that are you're, you're, you're worried about in this area. They're high emissions uh, potentially to produce products. A less talked about uh, version of it is where you also do a rebate of carbon costs for exports from that country. And that's not what's proposed, for instance, by uh, Europe, who are the closest to actually implementing one of these border adjustments. Uh, But it would be relevant to a country like Australia that has a quite different uh, trade uh, mix to Europe. The reason why you would do them, there's a a few different reasons that people talk about. The, uh, The one about the most probably is as a motivator for laggards as a stick to whack countries that are seen to not be pulling their weight on climate Uh, that gets talked about a lot but in in my view the the motivation that is most uh, potent for actually doing one of these is more about trade competitiveness so there's a persistent worry among countries that are doing or considering strong climate policies that put like a high carbon cost on emitters, that in the process, their industries are going to become less competitive. And they've considered a bunch of ways of uh, trying to resolve that. And the two most common are you don't have a policy at all. 
which has some pretty obvious drawbacks. Or if you've got a, a, a carbon uh, emissions trading scheme, uh, you hand out some level of the rights to emit the permits under that for free to those industries that you're worried about so that their out-of-pocket cost is controlled. Now, border adjustment, carbon tariffs, are another way of coming at that same challenge by putting a level, ideally, a level playing field uh, within the economy that's got the carbon constraint for all potential suppliers so they're all facing an equivalent carbon cost based on what their actual emissions might be, but the same price per unit of emissions. And the reason why it's suddenly getting talked about this very nerdy topic uh, is, is getting so much attention is because uh, it's gone from the world of something that like climate nerds and trade policy nerds uh, theorised about to something that uh, like one of the largest economies in the world, the European Union is actually seriously proposing to do. And some other major economies are at various stages of also considering. But Europe's the one where it's, it's getting really real and it might be uh, agreed in the next couple of years and uh, commence uh, in a report, as a reporting obligation in 2023 and then commence with financial obligations, uh, costs for importers for the relevant products from 2026. So not far off. Yeah. And one of the things that you sort of um, sort of mentioned there, Tenet, were, uh, was, um, you know, what the implications will be for um, other countries or like what the motivation is around um, introducing carbon tariffs. Um, do you think it will push countries like Australia to do better on decarbonisation? Um, and, you know, keen to hear from you um, on this also, Tony and Felicity. So if uh, the European CBAM, the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, came in more or less as it's currently proposed, Australia wouldn't suffer any immediate harm, it looks like. Like we did some analysis of uh, the, uh, the actual industries that are covered by the initial proposal and the way that that might flow through. And, and basically it looks as if it would actually be profit neutral or, or slightly better than that for uh, Australian steel makers and aluminium makers who are the, um, basically that's the only exports of ours that would be covered by the, the initial wave of this. And there's also the fact that because the aim of this thing uh, in the, like what's in the design is to equalize, not penalize. If Australia introduced, uh, say, we reintroduced the Gillard era uh, carbon pricing mechanism, if we did that tomorrow and CBAM was in in Europe tomorrow, the, the presence or absence of that local carbon price actually wouldn't uh, improve or worsen the competitiveness of an Australian export to Europe because they'd get a discount on their liability in Europe to the extent of whatever carbon price they paid at home and no more and no less. So the sum of that is the same cost. You're paying the, the car, at least the carbon price in Europe. So in a direct sense, no, it's not a stick that would necessarily whack us in the short term. You look like you want to jump in there, Felicity. Do you want to add something? Oh, I didn't. I definitely don't want to interrupt Tenet because um, <laughs> I love listening to him speak. But um, I was just going to mention that once it's something that's interesting about the CBAM because um, as Tenet mentioned, it is 
potentially replacing the policy of free allowance allocation to certain industries. And as everybody would be aware that free, free allowances means that no revenue ends up going um, to governments. Whereas a CBAM is kind of the opposite of that. It's, it's potential, the, the idea is that it'll have um, a similar impact on industries as the free permits, potentially, although it, it'll, it'll push people to reduce their emissions more hopefully. Um, but certainly if it imposes a cost on Australian industries, that revenue is not going to be going to Australian governments. It's going to be going to a government elsewhere. So in terms of whether that will encourage um, national governments to do something, maybe the thought of another government collecting revenue that they could be collecting themselves if they introduced a carbon price, maybe it could have an effect. I'm not sure. Um, I'm not an economist. I'm just, I'm just guessing. <laughs> Felicity, I think that's one of the other arguments that have been raised in favour of CBAMS is that it will tend to do what maybe many people in this debate thought was going to happen decades ago, which was to establish a global carbon trading scheme. And even when the Australian government did have that uh, arrangement the tenant referred to before under Julia Gillard as Prime Minister, the intention was if the, if that, if the um, Labor government had been returned, that we would have linked the Australian scheme to the European scheme. So this mechanism could actually do the same thing over a period of time. So that's one issue. I think the second big issue is that uh, plays out in terms of what I'd call political posturing. And that is how dare they do something to us? This is, you know, we're about free trade agreements and how dare they impose something which is clearly not free trade. Clearly this is protectionism, right? And uh, this is, so it's not really about the facts of the matter. It's about the political perception that some people would like to create that anything that even smells of imposing anything on Australian emissions is bad, evil, anti-free trade, anti-freedom anti almost. And I think that's why you're seeing such a strong reaction because, I mean, you know this better than I would, but you know the Europeans know exactly what they have to do to ensure that this does what Tennant described and it isn't anti-competitive, it's actually levelling the playing field. And there's, um, there's a really important feature of this that I don't think gets recognised enough, but how the money flows actually work out in a, in a CBAM is a bit counterintuitive. The, the bill at the border uh, in, in, for an import into Europe is going to be paid, yes, by the, the, the company that's doing the supplying. But uh, because every potential supplier of that product, so say it's a tonne of steel to a European customer who needs some steel to build an office block or whatever, every potential supplier to them is going to be facing a carbon price or a carbon cost. They'll either be producing within Europe and subject to the EU ETS, or they'll be producing outside of Europe and subject to the border adjustment, or uh, they will be a zero emissions producer that has the higher production cost that is associated with avoiding those carbon prices. And as a result, the consumer can't find anybody who is going to not charge them a carbon price to try and recover their own costs. And so a great portion of the carbon cost that any given supplier has, maybe all of it, 
is going to be recovered from their customers. Uh, and so, yes, the uh, European governments will be saving uh, the, the value of the permits they otherwise would have handed out for free, and they'll be earning some revenue at the border from uh, importers. Then the what economists call the incidence of that, uh, that cost, uh, and you know, the rest of us might call who actually pays, is consumers in Europe. And the Australian government, if they put on a carbon charge of their own um, on, on Australian production, for those exports to Europe, yes, they would be making some money, but they wouldn't be making that bit of the money from uh, actually from Australian producers. They'd be making that money from European consumers. So it'd be a great way for Australia to, to raise some revenue off Europe, actually, uh, if, if we made an adjustment like that. That's probably not going to make that big a difference to the federal budget, particularly in the state that it's currently in. But once you start thinking about those flows, then actually everybody can maybe get a bit calmer. Um, in the longer term, uh, the competitiveness um, of who is actually reducing their emissions fast enough, who's scaling up clean production and taking more of the market in economies that are doing an adjustment like this, like that absolutely could disadvantage Australian producers if they are unable to invest to keep up with that emissions reduction, if the electricity system they depend on is not able to invest to keep up with the pace of decarbonisation. So we've got to stay on the ball, uh, but we're not going to be, you know, out of business on day one of see that. I think to the other issue about this is that things have changed. In the last 10 or 15 years, since companies were concerned about a carbon price or carbon tax or obligation being imposed in Australia, the argument was, well, we're all going to be penalised because the rest of the world doesn't have anything like this. Now, the trick is, as you just indicated, I think the world has changed and we're the ones who are now seen to be the laggards. Um, and those many companies across the entire economy, whether they're going to be exposed to this or not, are now seeing those, the forces of change coming to them at an enormous rate, um, coming from not just consumers and overseas governments, but also from their shareholders, their financial investors and all that sort of stuff. And this is just another one of those. Um, so you can see why you know, companies are trying to understand this very rapidly. But I think one of the arguments that may be quite different now that was argued back in when the Gillard carbon price was in, introduced or even the CPRS under Kevin Rudd was that the need to protect Australian companies against uh, things happening overseas in those evil companies that didn't have a carbon price may start to be changing. And that's going to be important if we do ever come back to having anything like a carbon uh, policy in this country. Felicity, did you wanna jump in there? And then I've got a question. Sure, and I was just going to, I was going to say um, a couple of things, but um, just coming back to the CPM under the Gillard government, then um, rest assured there were certainly plenty of protections under the CPM that they'd introduced at the same time. It certainly wasn't just going to expose industries instantly to this carbon price that nobody else was going to be paying. Um, and the other thing I just wanted to mention, this was just coming back to when we were chatting earlier, Tenet, about the stick and the perception of the CBAM as opposed to the actual impact. That could potentially be worse because um, I can't remember which speech it was in um, when they were talking about 
um, introducing the CBAM, I think it was earlier this year, where they were basically saying, uh, the EU were basically saying, look, we have no choice but to do this. And when the rest of the world pulls up its socks, well, they didn't say it like that, but when the rest of the world effect effectively comes to the party and int introduces a carbon price, the same as we are, and makes a commitment for zero carbon emissions by 2050, then maybe we won't have to introduce something like this. But until then, we're left with no choice. So this is what we're going to do. So in some ways, it sounds a lot like Europe is doing what Europe's been doing for a while when it comes to climate change, which is sort of leading the way and, and demonstrating um, both the urgency of what needs to be done, but also what's possible. Um, let me put a hypothetical to you, which is that if, if the EU were to introduce um, some sort of carbon tariff um, and uh, over the next few years and the US were to follow suit now that there's sort of changes in the US administration and, you know, with luck, um, we'll see that, that country adopting a much more strident stance when it comes to climate action. If the US and the EU as, as probably two of the biggest um, trading zones or countries, I guess, in the world, how consequential is that? I mean, is the, how big is this stick? Or the, how potentially big is this stick for the rest of the world? And I'm thinking now about Australia, yes, but also for countries like Japan and China and India. Well, we export a lot more aluminium and steel to the US than we do to the EU. Uh, and certainly uh, if the draft legislation that's in front of the Congress right now, and with the support of the, the democratic leadership in both houses for something that is different in detail, but similar in spirit to the EU proposal, if that actually passes, which it, it could, um, you know, US Congress is a pretty complicated place, uh, then, yes, a lot of people uh, in Australia and around the world will sit up and pay attention. The EU one is, like, it's very likely to happen. It's got a lot of, um, of momentum and support from, uh, from governments, from, from the heads of government and from the European Commission itself. It's, it's complicated and, and, like, Brussels is a complex sausage machine too, uh, but it, that is going to have a, a big impact. A whole lot of European uh, regulations and, and rules uh, have a, a global impact. Their regulation on hazardous, sub, hazardous substances, their energy efficiency rules. Uh, if they're a big market, the US is a big market, uh, they will certainly have an impact beyond their borders. And you will see uh, other uh, producers in other countries trying to um, do what they can to be competitive in those big markets. Uh, and the, the one way to try and be competitive might be to try and tear the whole system down uh, through legal challenges. I don't think those are likely to succeed. The Europeans are really, really being careful to the point of being quite cautious and tentative in how they have designed this initial proposal. Uh, they're really taking care to respect the letter and the spirit of their WTO commitments. Um, so the other way to try and be competitive is to have a good story to tell in substance uh, on emissions and to tell it well. Uh, and Australia, actually, you know, right now, we, we may be doing a little better than we think, but we certainly have very good data, uh, whereas uh, the biggest suppliers of cement and steel and aluminium to Europe 
which is Russia and Turkey, are probably going to have a hard time, their companies, getting their data accepted by European authorities. We could have a leg up if we, you know, um, put our, pull our socks up. I don't know. That's, <laughs> that, that's, that metaphor is getting monkey. <laughs> Felicity, I want to throw to you about the WTO and if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about the WTO rules and what this means. I mean, I know that people listening to this call would know that oftentimes we are told that uh, decisions can't be taken in Australia because it would be a breach of our international trading obligations. Uh, when we introduced plain paper packaging for cigarettes, for example, there was a case. Um, you know, we ended up winning that case, but certainly there was a challenge. Um, how significant are the WTO rules? And could that be the thing that comes this uh, all unstuck? Or as uh, tenants suggest, have the, ET, uh, the uh, EU done their homework and, and got the, the fine details right? Um, sure. Well, there's a, there's a couple of aspects to your question. I'll try not to take up too much time um, because the EU have certainly flagged the WTO rules and WTO compliance at the outset. And um, a little part of me wants to say that's kind of a way of them hiding behind the WTO to a certain extent because um, as both Tony and Tennant have pointed out, this is about reaching beyond their borders. And I think Tony said it, you know, um, some of the industries that have the how dare they response to this, that they're reaching in and telling us how to behave. And the EU is well aware of that and saying, well, look, it's okay. We're complying with the WTO rules is, is almost, it's a little bit of a barrier, um, but maybe that's not the intention. Maybe that's just my read um, of um, them mentioning it so frequently that we need to comply with these rules. But in terms of compliance, it, it you know, I could speak about the compliance with the WTO rules for probably, you know, for the next hour, and I'm pretty sure nobody wants to hear me <laughs> talk about that. Um, the idea with a border tax adjustment, and tenant sort of um, alluded to it at the start of the podcast that it can be an adjustment um, about, you know, imposing costs when on products that come in or um, providing a rebate on the products that go out. They're not looking at that second aspect of it and it's not necessarily about imposing it on products and so that's where it may actually infringe one of the WTO requirements um, and again I won't go into the, the weeds about all of that because um, I'll just lose everybody in terms of interest <laughs> levels but there is one get out of jail free card essentially under the rules and that is article 20 of the GATT that basically says there's these there's two environmental exceptions one being um, that it's related to natural resources, the other that it's necessary to protect human, animal or plant life or health. It also needs to comply with other requirements in order to meet those exception provisions. But it seems, and you know, perhaps correct me if I'm wrong, it seems that they're looking at that exception provision as being their main way of complying with those rules. Um, and the other part of the WTO rules is I think they're extremely significant. They're, um, you know, it's this multilateral trading system that incorporates 164, I think, members, um, member countries. Um, so it's definitely something that you need to pay attention to. But if there's no challenge or no request for consultations from another member, member party, um, you can pretty much do as you wish without facing a challenge. So it all depends on whether there is a challenge to what you do um, mm -hmm. as to whether you need to respond to it. Sorry, just a quick question on that. Um, 
who might bring a challenge and, and is there a risk that we might find ourselves uh, with Australia being the one that brings a challenge? Like, uh, I mean, would that be, we're already the sort of prize of the world. Could we, could we be even worse down the sort of scale of decency than we currently are? Well, the, the, the government's initial reaction was uh, expressing a lot of concern about this. Um, I've had a, a, a few conversations with them um, in, in recent weeks, and I think that they're getting uh, a bit more reassured as time goes on, both that not very much trade is directly affected in the first instance, so about a quarter of 1% of our goods, the value of our goods exports to Europe, would be covered by the initial scope of this. Uh, and I think that also the analysis that actually um, the, the uh, substantive result even for covered trade uh, might be uh, benign uh, is, is, is cutting through. But yes, um, Australia has been a strong defender of the multilateral um, trading system. And uh, if they believe or, or are given reason to believe that this is actually cutting against the letter and the spirit of that, then they might well take a case. Uh, but the EU is trying hard not to give that cause. And if they're successful in calming the horses, uh, then, you know, they, they may well um, be okay. The products that they're covering in the first instance are ones where they don't have a lot of uh, trade with China and the US in particular. So they're sort of experimenting uh, off-Broadway on uh, Russia and Turkey where they, they may feel a little more comfortable uh, picking a fight, um, even though they're actually trying to, to be quite reassuring in how they're doing. Mm. And with this sort of conversation, discussion happening on, at an international stage, and this year we've got the Glasgow United Nations um, Climate Change Conference, what do you think the likely outcomes will be at Glasgow? Um, and maybe if you can kick us off, Tony. Oh, look. Yeah, the, the Glasgow one's going to be more than mildly entertaining, I guess. Um, presumably, it'll be a, uh, it'll be a virtual uh, COP, which um, I'm sure people like Tennant who've been to all these COPs will um, be very disappointed not to be there in person. And personally, I am uh, having got close to one once, I never want to go anywhere near it again. Mm. <laughs> um, so uh, because... You know, if you think what we're having now is a little bit dense, go to one of those things and you'll get dense beyond belief. I think the, um, you know, Australia is going to go to this COP. Uh, who knows what exactly we'll take to it? Because I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, you'll see every day the pressure coming through uh, on the government about raising the aspirations of our current emissions com commitment anyway. There are some very complex issues being negotiated around international recognition of various mechanisms in the whole COP process. And... Um, you know, we're involved in those. Uh, many of them are, are to do with the, what I'd loosely, and this one is in the same space, what I loosely call the global carbon supply chains. And it comes back to the, you know, the somewhat infamous example that Barnaby Joyce used about uh, a leg, what does this all do to the cost of a leg of lamb? Now, and that's how you get people's attention in Australia, right? So, but in the, I, I'm not sure it'll cut, uh, cut the mustard in Glasgow. Maybe you need, what does it do to a haggis? Maybe that's not a boat we should have it. Uh, but what it, does, what it does do though, it exposes where do the emissions occur when you buy a leg of lamb in the supermarket in the, in, in the UK or in Australia, where did the emissions occur that contributed to that leg of lamb getting into your supermarket, tro supermarket trolley? And these things move it around. 
where the, to some extent, where the carbon obligation, carbon tax, carbon price is imposed, let's assume whatever the emissions occur, that should happen. But if you effectively move those emissions around by what you do, it can have a big impact on producers in, of lamb in the UK, in New Zealand, Australia, and so forth. So you, know, you can see why that's going to get very, I think could get very complicated very quickly. And I think the reason that some uh, concern isn't about the very cautious and almost certainly robust thing that he's going to put in place is this the beginning of something else and i think that's where the the concern is because you could see well if this goes through then what's going to happen next and when will it really affect the cost of the things that we do export directly or indirectly to the eu or to the us and i think that's what is going to cause more of a reaction now you know at the moment i cannot see a if if I, if I had to take a series of things on behalf of the commonwealth of us current government to um, to the cop I wouldn't be taking this one. I think that we're, they're on a hiding for nothing if they want to have this fight at the moment for the reasons tenants explained. Yeah. Final question to, to each of you. Um, quick prediction. Uh, we've got COP coming up shortly. Uh, this debate rages. Um, obviously in Australia, there's the ongoing discussion about net zero and, and our, well, we would probably argue lack of action on climate um, here, uh, in five years' time, what does the world look like, Felicity? Oh, wow. <laughs> what does the world look like in five years' time? Well, let's hope it, it's, it's a bit rosier in terms of um, global policies on climate change. Let's hope that we're not staring down the barrel of, you know, worse than a two-degree warming. Um, five years' time, what does it take us to um, 2026? We'd better be well and truly on the way to reducing those emissions. You know, in the EU, they're talking, what was the FIT 55 was the policy to reduce it 55% from 1990 levels by 2030. So that there would have to be a drastic change. Um, that's just within the EU, but we need to see it everywhere. Um, I'd love to see China, um, you know, doing a lot more and um, implementing policies. and. Um, you know, they're not adverse to following the lead of the EU. They have shown some um, tendencies to, you know, improve their environmental policies. Um, I've, I'm often accused of putting on rose-coloured glasses, though, so perhaps I'm just being overly positive um, and I'll choose to live with that vision that, you know, we're going to be somewhere better off if um, Scott Morrison is still... The Prime Minister of Australia. Um, I'm not sure that Australia will be doing significantly better, but um, you know, perhaps I'm wrong. Maybe he'll have a bit of a change of heart in five years' time. Um, but I'd say that he'd probably be occupying a different position in five years' time if I was to be a betting woman. Tenant, five years' time. I think that in five years' time uh, we will be uh, starting. EU CBAM and a couple of other major economies will be closer to implementing their own and a bunch more products will be uh, considered and, and included than those that are on the table today. I think that uh, Australia and a lot of other countries will have deeper midterm emissions targets than they do today and that we will be uh, looking at our latest emissions um, projections and our latest uh, emissions figures and, you know, uh, finding, as we have every year for the past decade, that they're falling faster than we thought they would uh, and that it's turned out to be easier than we thought it would. Uh, 
uh, and we will still be unhappy with the pace of change, but um, you know, we will be making significant progress. And Tony, five years time. Well, I think from the um, Elon Musk uh, establishment on Mars, um, the world will still be roundish and bluish. Um, uh, I think for those who, who was those of us who would like to think we'll still be here and not in a cave, um, you know, COVID ten point nine. I think the um, two, there's two things, and these are somewhat how these will play out. Are contrary, right? One is I think that the numbers are terrifying in a sense if you take them literally, and unfortunately, the more terrifying the numbers become, the more people freeze with the, uh, the, just the catastrophic approach is just very, it's very clever actually for people to make it sound so catastrophic that everyone just freezes. I think that's a real risk and we won't, we won't make a lot of progress internationally. However, I actually think even if Scott Morrison is reelected, we'll have made a lot of progress in Australia. And I'd like to think that will happen um, and not just on electricity, which is the one sector that is projected to make reasonable progress between now and 2030, because nothing else is. And, you know, electricity is falling and it's um, the, the problem we have is the rest. And the thing that I think will change that is that unfortunately it'll be a negative thing. And that is one of the next two or three summers will be a repeat of what the Northern Hemisphere has just gone through and what we went through in the summer of 2019, 20, not 2020, 2021. And if that happens, firstly, um, Morrison who only has one objective in, in life and that's to retain his prime ministership will have changed direction. And so whoever gets elected, uh, whenever this election is, I think we'll have seen a significant change on this issue in Australia. And I genuinely believe that Morrison is pragmatic enough to make that change. And it may very well be that even between now and the COP, the pressure that's building plays out such that um, Barnaby Joyce takes advantage of that pressure on the prime minister and extricates a deal, which is good for his constituents and the National Party and actually gets Australia across the line on a, on a target of, of, of you know, net zero by 2050. Unfortunately, I'd like to think the Prime Minister doesn't back off the other side of his page and that is, let's make sure we have some inkling of how we're gonna get there. Thank you to all three of you for joining us tonight. It's, it's been an absolute privilege to talk to you all and um, judging by the comments and the chat, um, everyone's been highly engaged and I think we all, um, think we need to educate ourselves a bit more about global trade right now. Um, but thanks indeed. And, and maybe in five years time, we can all uh, come back and uh, check in on some of those predictions uh, a moment ago. Um, thank you to everyone who's listening. Thanks for tuning in. Um, we've got quite a lot of uh, uh, good episodes planned over the next few weeks. Uh, so keep an eye out for, for what's coming next. Um, some great chats uh, planned, including uh, in the lead up to the Nature Conservation Council uh, annual conference, which is in the first week of November. Um, so look out for information about uh, that as well. Jackie, uh, before we go, uh, the way that we fund all of this and the way that we keep NCC going is by people's generous contributions and people do chip in each time. So at the end of this call, you'll get a, a little prompt to, to chuck in a bit of cash. I know times are tough at the moment, but, um, but if you can afford to, to throw us a few dollars to keep programs like this, but really our whole advocacy campaigning and organising program going, um, please do. Because as we say, koalas grow on trees, but... Money does not.
and you'll see the link in the chat to donate to NCC because it really is thanks to the generous donations of people just like you that we can keep going. Tenant, tenant particularly knows, as from the Australian Industry Group, the money doesn't grow on trees. So uh, uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us and have a good evening. <laughs> thanks, all. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, can you chip in to help us be the voice for nature? We rely on donations to keep being effective, loud and independent. Visit nature.org.au.